if you find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. I should say that we did pick this passage a long time ago. It wasn't to do with uh, the coronavirus. So if you're listening online, which I know some people in the town do, uh, this isn't for uh, the purposes of that. It's carrying on in our series where we left off uh, in Genesis. Let me just pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for all the relevance that it has to the way that we live now and all that we do. And Father, we pray that we would learn this evening from your word. Father, speak to us from uh, the life of Abraham and help us uh, to be better followers of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What do we do with tough passages in the Bible when we come across difficult ones like the ones we're going to meet over the coming weeks in Genesis? We have a few options, don't we? We can ignore them. Uh, One of the reasons that we systematically teach through Scripture is that we can't ignore them. We can't avoid them. We meet these passages and we face them. Um, We can dismiss them. That's another option. We can just write them off and say they belong to another time, another place. But interestingly, that's not how the Bible speaks uh, about these things. It's not how the Bible speaks of itself either. But specifically with these stories, these are picked up in the New Testament that draw lessons from the events surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah that mean that we can't just blot them out of the Bible. Actually, the whole Bible fits together uh, like that. So we can't just skip bits out and cut and paste and and do things like that. Actually, we need to deal uh, with what we've got in front of them. They're real events that are there to teach us real things. So we're not going to ignore them. We're not going to dismiss them. We're going to learn from them because that's what God has put them there for. So even though they're tough, we're still given them to learn from. So what do we have this evening? Well, here we have the build-up to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Names that would be forever associated with sin and fire and brimstone that God brought on them. That in itself is going to be a a tough passage, isn't it? Um, But I don't need to give you a spoiler alert, as Genesis has already told us that this is going to happen. Uh, Actually, Genesis, back in Genesis 13 verse 10 gives you this bit when Lot goes to move towards it. It says at the end, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, It's a bit of a spoiler, really, for the rest of the story. And it's actually told us what Sodom is like. So Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. So the things that we find here, actually, we've already been told in Genesis. So as we come to this story, we should sort of know what to expect As we see the build-up, we're supposed to know what's going to happen. It's not supposed to come as a surprise. Abraham's already had a run-in with Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot was taken um, with the others from Sodom and the surrounding cities by a coalition of kings from the east. And if you remember then, Abraham's attitude to Sodom was quite strong. He refused to take anything from the king of Sodom. He wanted nothing to do with him. He didn't want to say that anybody had made him rich, especially not the king of Sodom. But Lot, we're told at that point, returned there with his family. And now we have the Lord come down to visit Sodom. He appeared in the previous passage that we did last year uh, and came to Abraham. Abraham welcomed him with open arms. And it seems as he appeared as three men. That seemed to be what was, was happening. Though it becomes clearer now that it's the Lord and two of his angels. That's still a little bit ambiguous, as we'll see, as the Lord talks about himself going to see what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet it's the angels that go. So there's still that tension over exactly what is happening. But the discussion between the Lord and Abraham provides us with a break in the action, an interlude, an aside. You could go straight from verse 16, 
where we're told they set off to Sodom, down to 19 verse 1 where they arrive there. What happens in between is an explanation of what is going to happen next and why it's happening. What follows is a discussion recorded for our benefit to know what's really going on. Now I should say with this we need to be a bit patient with Abraham as he talks to God. Whilst he is the chosen one as we'll see, he does not have the same benefits with we, uh, that we do. Namely, he doesn't have a full Bible. So he's going off what he knows about God and trying to use that as he talks about God. But we're going to see that actually some things that are quite obvious to us aren't obvious to Abraham. So first of all, judgment is announced and explained. Have a look at verses 16 to 19. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So seemingly here we find God talking to himself, if you like. He's talking out loud, but uh, to himself. Should he tell Abraham what he's going to do? Now it's interesting here that God doesn't owe this to Abraham, so to speak. He doesn't owe him an explanation. But it's another excuse to remind us just how key to God's plan Abraham is. The reason God feels that he should share this with Abraham is that Abraham is a special case. God has made those huge promises to him that are mentioned here. He will become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And if you think about it, this sets the storyline for the rest of the Bible, really the promises that are made to Abraham, God giving uh, those promises to his descendants. So it's as though Abraham is a sort of special case that he feels that he should share it with him. We're, We're told that about Abraham. We're also told that he's been chosen by God to lead his family in the way of the Lord. Now that's something new, that's not been mentioned in Genesis before. The idea of following the way of the Lord. And Abraham is one who is going to lead his family in that. Now notice this doesn't say, I've chosen him because he follows the way of the Lord. But it's, I've chosen him so that... He will do something with the way of the Lord. It's not sort of saying he's a diligent father, so I picked him. It's saying I picked him so he'd be a diligent father. It's the other way round. He is to pass on the way of the Lord to his children. That's one of the things that he has been chosen for. For them to do righteousness and justice. Now righteousness and justice are not explained at this point. There's no law to follow. That would come hundreds of years later. And it's not that he's just to teach a set of rules to his family. They're not supposed to become legalists. But there is a sense in which they're supposed to be different. We're supposed to find people who follow after Abraham, who resemble Abraham in his faith, who walk with God. A nation of Abrahams that will be so different from the nation that he is destroying here. And it's so that God may bring Abraham what he has promised him. He's going to bring him this great nation and blessing beyond his wildest dreams. 
And part of that is that Abraham is passing on these things to his children. That's part of the process that will take place. He's passing on the way of the Lord to his family. So not only are they chosen, they're different from the nations around them. John Calvin, not my Calvin, different Calvin. John Calvin says this command has implications for us as Christians too. This is what John Calvin says. God does not make known to us his will, that the knowledge of it may perish with us, but that it may that we may be witnesses to posterity and that we may deliver the knowledge received through him from hand to hand to their descendants. So what he's saying there is that God has made known to us his will. That's what we find in the New Testament. But we are to pass that on. And not just to our descendants, but to all around us. We're to pass on what God has given to us. There's a sort of evangelistic impetus to this verse. That the way of the Lord is something to be shared. It's something to be passed on to our children, but also to people around us. It's not to stay with Abraham, if you like. This is a promise that will go down through the generations. There will be things that are passed on that start at Abraham. But the conclusion here seems to be that because he is this special one, because he is this chosen one, God is going to share his plans with Abraham. Perhaps he lets him overhear the conversation or some way Abraham already seems to know actually what's going on. But either way, that fits in with what we read elsewhere in scripture. God is letting Abraham know his plans because Abraham is the friend of God. That's the way scripture describes him. In John 15, 15, On the back of your notice sheets, it speaks in similar ways in the New Testament. This is Jesus talking. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. God lets his friends know what he's doing. So by letting Abraham know what he's doing, he's treating him as a friend. And actually, as we learn things from the word, as God reveals things to us, he's treating us as a friend. Now, pause and think about that for a second. Subject, yes. Servant, yes. Creature, yes. But friend? That the almighty, all-powerful God would treat any other being as a friend is incredible, isn't it? Let alone sinful creatures like us. That God treats us as friends. And yet God... Is, is treating Abraham as a friend. That's an incredible concept, isn't it? To have God as your friend. But Abraham here is being revealed. He's, he's having the plans revealed to him. So God tells Abraham of the judgment to come. Though as I say, we're not actually told how he does it. Uh, but God gives him a forewarning. Now there are echoes here of the flood. Uh, which somebody pointed out to me before. It very, sounds very similar to the flood. Uh, the story that we have here. That other great intervention where God wiped people out. God announces to Noah, if you remember, his intention before he does it. There, though, it's so Noah can escape. But here, Abraham is in no danger. He's telling him so he can understand what is happening. And as he leads his family, he can teach them what God is like. He can tell them of this incident and what it shows us about what, uh, who God is and what he does. God does not always give us explanations as to why things happen. But we have, like I say, something Abraham didn't. We have the Bible, which gives us some general things that we can say about uh, when difficult things happen. But here, actually, God tells Abraham what is happening. 
And here he sets a model as to why judgment happens. And not just judgment in the world. In fact, it's not really judgment in the world. It's more speaking of the judgment to come. So 2 Peter 2.6 says that this is made an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah are, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. What we have in Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the judgment to come. Judgment day. How? So why does judgment happen, both in Sodom and Gomorrah and also final judgment? Well, those are our other two points, and they help us to think it through a bit more generally. So our, uh, our second, sorry. <laughs> there you go. Second point. Judgment is based on actual evidence. Have a look at verses 20 uh, to 22. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. The Lord himself decides to go down and see. And that's why it's ambiguous as to the role of the angels here. But Abraham will be talking to the Lord. And the Lord is able to say what's going on down there as though he's seeing what's happening. The language of going down to see echoes the language of the Tower of Babel. So Genesis 11 verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. It's supposed to sound a bit ominous. Now he literally is going down to sea in both cases, isn't he? Here it's literally Sodom lay by the Dead Sea, possibly in what's part of the Dead Sea uh, now. Sodom literally lay below sea level. It was the lowest place on earth, quite literally. God goes down to Sodom to see if all that he has heard is true. But it's not as if God doesn't know what's happening. Yeah? It's not that God sort of heard it on the grapevine but isn't sure what's going on in Sodom. Again, this is for our benefit. God will walk among the streets of Sodom, so to speak, even though it's the angels who go. And what will happen when he actually goes and visits this place? The angels will be threatened with sexual assault by a baying mob. It's hardly a glowing report, is it? You wouldn't want that on your TripAdvisor profile for your city, would you? Uh, You know, went there, very bad experience. But it's also a foreshadowing of what is to come in the Bible. God will walk the streets of our world again. He'll come as a man, Jesus, and walk among us. And what was his experience? Well, he was mocked and he was crucified. Can you imagine that on TripAdvisor? Earth, welcome, zero stars, was brutally murdered there. That is what we're like as a race of people. So it should be no surprise that we find it here in Sodom. This is actually what we're like as human beings. But as we consider what will happen, remember Genesis has told us that it's coming. We must see what will happen based on what actually is going on in Sodom and the surrounding towns. It's not just that God is being mean or acting without forethought or actual evidence. He's going down to see for himself. And what he will find there is shocking beyond belief. And it's much broader than just what he experiences on the visit. The rest of scripture fills us in on other aspects of Sodom and Gomorrah that aren't mentioned here. So Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. Again, it's on the back of your notice sheets. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. 
she and her daughters had pride, excessive food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We don't often speak about this part of it, do we? But actually the other sins of Sodom are pride. They were haughty, they were lifted up before God. They had plenty, but without regard to the poor and needy. Whereas Abraham had welcomed in these visitors with open arms when they come to him and, and given them an excess of food, actually Sodom does quite the opposite, doesn't it? There's nowhere for them to stay. They were haughty and they did atrocious things. Well, we're going to see that next week, aren't we, as we actually get there. But before we jump into what happens in the future, remember that the cry here had already gone up to God. It's not that something will happen in the future and then God will come. Actually, the cry has already gone up. God is coming down because he's heard how bad this place is. And all that the angels see will only confirm it. It says there in verse 20 that their sin is very grave. Now, the word for grave there uh, elsewhere is translated as glorious. That sounds a little bit weird, but you know, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of our God. Same word. In Samuel, it's translated as heavy. So 1 Samuel 4, 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. Same word here as that grave or glorious. It's the idea of something heavy and imposing, something impossible to miss because of its weight and gravity. And that's what their sin was like. There was more than enough evidence to convict them of guilt. There's a host of witnesses crying out to God. And soon there will be God himself. God says he will know whether what's been said of Sodom is true or not. He'll see for himself. And the same is true of the judgment that this judgment points forward to. The final judgment, judgment day. It will be based on real evidence. So Revelation twenty twelve, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. The implication here is that God has a book with everything written in it. It's the idea of, he's got evidence, if you like. He's got the receipts, he's got the, the, the CCTV, if you like. Or Romans 2, 6 to 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What it's saying there is that God will base his judgment of the wicked on evidence. It's on actual things that they have done. It's on actual instances that have taken place. There will be no miscarriages of justice. There will be no mistakes. But that being the case, and with God keeping track of everything, could any of us claim innocence? That picture of of the book that records all our offences, all our bad deeds, all our selfish thoughts, all our prideful feelings. Could any of us plead innocence? If it was written today, it might sort of say it was almost like the CCTV cameras everywhere. I know that's a quite a scary uh, uh, idea. Uh, we've got ones in the new building. I find them quite scary. They're sort of, you know, everywhere's one on the roof and they're, they're all over the place. 
Imagine that you had that, but actually it was filming you all the time. And not just what you did, but your thoughts and your feelings as well. I know um, someone put a comment on on social media that uh, they wish they could read minds. And then they went on Facebook and changed their minds. Because of the things that people put out actually in the open. Could you imagine if you could get into people's minds? Actually think about all the, the scandals we've seen recently about people being nasty on things like Twitter and Facebook and social media. Actually where we can remain anonymous, we unleash all sorts of awful things on people. But God sees, he sees all that. What if my life was on display this evening? What if we could watch it back through my actions and my thoughts and my feelings? Well, God says, actually, he is watching. He does see, he hears those cries when we hurt people. And also, he tells us that he is judge of all the earth. Could any of us claim innocence? Could any of us claim that we were free of sin? No. None of us could, could we? The idea of you seeing my thoughts terrifies me because I'm a sinner. But should we not be more terrified that the judge of all the earth sees our thoughts, sees our actions, sees our feelings? The come down language is for our benefit. God doesn't need to come down, but it's showing us that he does take an interest. He sees, he's got it in his book, he's got it on tape. There'll be no miscarriages of justice on Judgment Day. If we are judged, it'll be because of real evidence. That's what it's showing us by the fact that God comes down. And then the second thing that we see about judgment is that it's based on God's fairness. It's based on God's fairness. I'll just read the first part of uh, 23 and then uh, go down to the end. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I spare, uh, sorry, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, as it goes on, you get the numbers smaller and smaller, don't you? Right the way down to ten. What we have to make crystal clear here is that God is not haggling God down. That is not what's happening in this last section here. This is not a negotiation where Abraham talks God down from killing innocent people. It's not that God wants to destroy 50 righteous people that Abraham changed his mind. That's not what's going on. It's worth noting, of course, that God goes ahead anyway. So if this was a negotiation, then Abraham failed. So why is it recorded for us if actually the result at the end is the same? He was going to destroy Sodom, he's still going to destroy Sodom. Why is it recorded for us? Well, it's to show us that God's judgment is based on fairness. Abraham is totally right with what he says in in verse 25, isn't he? Far be it from you to do such a wicked thing to put the righteous to death. With the wicked. He's saying God will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. In this picture of final judgment, their endings cannot be more different. Of course, in physical life, we see something different, don't we? When disasters happen, there is a sense that the righteous are swept away with the wicked. But not in final judgment. 
not on judgment day, then actually our destinations are completely different. But what we have demonstrated here by this going down of numbers is the complete comprehensive wickedness of Sodom. If there were just ten people who did what was right, who followed the way of the Lord in the language of what we talked about, he would spare the city. God wouldn't sweep them away in this judgment, this picture of final judgment. They wouldn't get caught up with it. The fact he he doesn't shows that there are not ten there. That's what we're supposed to see. There's not ten righteous people in Sodom when God wipes it out. Why does he stop at ten? Well, there's been all sorts of uh, answers been given to that. It's the size of a synagogue, but this is way too early for synagogues. Size of Lot's family, no evidence for that. Um, God didn't spare the whole world for eight. If you think about it, with Noah and his family, he still flooded the whole world but rescued them. That would fit more with Genesis, wouldn't it? If God hadn't spared the whole world for eight, then ten doesn't seem so unreasonable for a city. But the fact is, though, that there aren't ten. Not even ten in this city. But the righteous man Lot will be rescued. We're not told that here, but that's what will happen. The picture more commonly is in Bible, isn't it, that it's not that God stops judgment for the sake of the righteous, but that he rescues the righteous out of the judgment. He doesn't stop the judgment, he rescues the righteous out of the judgment. And that's uh, true of the end as well. God won't spare the world for his people, but he will rescue his people when judgment day comes. He will deliver them safely. And that's the lesson the New Testament takes from this as well. So 2 Peter 2, 4 to 10. It's a long sentence, so I've had to put all the verses in. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The picture of Sodom is a picture of a place destined for destruction. It's a picture of a place of judgment that you need to escape from. It's a reminder of the context of Genesis. I'm sorry, a reminder that this is... Um, written to the wilderness generation, the whole book of Genesis was written to that group that had left Egypt and were pushing on to the promised land. And the goal of Genesis was to remind them that turning back to Egypt was a bad idea and pressing on to the promised land was a good idea. Well, they had left Egypt, a place of God's judgment. And it's a reminder here that judgment comes justly. It was a good idea to leave Egypt. It would be a bad idea to go back. Like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, he leaves the city of destruction. And that's a good thing. And it's a good thing that we've left it too. We'll have others in mind here as we think about God's judgment. But it's worth remembering that we once lived in Sodom, so to speak. We once lived in the city of destruction. And it's good that we've left. 
It's good that God has rescued us from there. So don't go back. Don't go back to your old way of life. But it's worth noting how the story ends. So Abraham uh, leaves the situation with God. Have a look at verse 33. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. The end of this, after all this discussion with God, when we found out that um, for ten people he'd uh, save it, the end of all that, Abraham goes home. Now, we're to understand that he understood that his nephew Lot is there. He knows that Lot's family are there in Sodom. But there's no rescue mission from Abraham here. He just goes home. Abraham's done rescue missions for Lot before. He rescued Lot when he was captured by those kings of the east. And it's not beyond Abraham to go do that. He could have run down to Sodom ahead of the angels, grabbed Lot and brought him out. The interesting thing here is that he leaves it with God. God has showed himself by this conversation. He showed him that his judgment is based on evidence. God will see for himself. He's shown him that his judgment is fair. And on that basis, Abraham seems happy to leave Lot and his family in God's hands. He knows that God won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. So he leaves Lot and the fate of Sodom with God. He's satisfied that, as we said in verse 25, the judge of all the earth will do what is just. Now, any passage that focuses on God's judgment will be a tough passage, especially as we think of loved ones who are facing God's judgment potentially. But here is a reminder of the best approach to take. Remember what is true of God. He is just. He is fair. He is good. He knows how to rescue the righteous. He knows how to rescue his people. He sent Jesus into the world to rescue us. So that even though we have done all those things that we see on CCTV camera, actually we can still find a place with God. Not because we're good, but because God knows how to rescue us. So we can remember that God is just and he's fair and he's good and he rescues. We can remember that there are no miscarriages of justice with God. The judge of all will do what is right. And if our loved ones are still alive, then there's still hope, isn't there? There's still hope that God will rescue them. And God is just and fair in all that he does. But as for Sodom, well, it's long gone. And we'll find out next time what happens when the angels arrive in the city. Only to find that things are far worse, perhaps, than even the cries have gone out. Let's uh, pray that God would help us to heed the lessons of this. Father God, as we come to a difficult passage like this, Father, we pray that you would help us um, to listen to what your word says. Father, as we think about the difficult topic of your judgment of the world, Father, we pray for our loved ones. Father, we we long for them to come to know you. Father, we long for them to be saved. We long for them to be rescued like Lot was from the destruction. Father, help us to keep trusting in you. Father, knowing that you are good, knowing that you are just, knowing that you your judgment is based on fairness. And Father, in the end, let us leave it in your hands, Father, because your hands are much better than our hands at dealing with this. So, Father, help us to trust you with all this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're going to finish by uh, singing Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me.
which is just a reminder of that picture of being rescued from judgment while the storm is all around. We have a safe place to go.